everyone, I'm Hannah Lloyd. And I'm Charlotte Gilfillan. Welcome to our podcast, Women in Wellies. Each episode, we will be inviting a guest to share their stories, experiences and lessons of working and living in rural Scotland. We want to get to know the real women behind the wellies and share them with you, our listeners. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Women in Wellies podcast. And this morning we are joined by Kirstine Hare. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks very much for being with us today. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, ple- pleasure to join you. Um, I am Kirsten here and the, I was formerly the Member of Parliament for Angus and I'm now a leadership coach working with women. Um, I come from a rural background. I was brought up on the family farm just outside Brechin, which my other my dad still farm and was very involved in the farm from a very young age um, and have kind of always been very passionate about farming and, and rural issues. And after I left, um, home, I went to study politics up at Aberdeen University, remained very involved in, in young farmers. And then I went on to uh, roles in events and in the publishing sector in London and, and in Edinburgh before uh, coming back at home and uh, standing uh, as the MP for, um, standing as the candidate rather for Angus and coming MP in 2017. And I lost my seat. Uh, unfortunately in the most recent election but have taken the kind of skills and 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 things I enjoyed in that role in parliament to now work with women in leadership roles um, across various industries and I speak and write uh, around the promotion of accelerating the pace of kind of gender equality across leadership roles in organizations and uh, companies and in parliament as well so uh, so yeah I think that's a whistle-stop tour. That's quite some journey, Kirstine, certainly. What was it like growing up on the farm then? So um, I'm one of four. Um, so I think that uh, with three siblings, you can get, we were always kind of working on the farm and you know, summer holidays and Easter holidays and things. And um, my, had, my dad was really quite a hard taskmaster. And we had all sorts of jobs from sort of painting to roguing the barley and the wheat to gathering stones and carting off in the combine and um so yeah we were very very involved in it I think being one of four there's probably even though you get some kind of really rubbish jobs you can inject some fun into that um and I think that that we probably did did that quite well so um yeah good good fun and really good experience um and yeah still kind of love being in the countryside and um I think it instills I think probably working on the farm instills a really sort of strong work ethic in you and I think that that's probably stuck with me um and and still there with me today. Absolutely. So what inspired moving up to Aberdeen to study politics? So I think I was really unsure about what I wanted to do throughout school. And I remember one of um, my teachers who I really kind of valued and and respected their opinion. And they said, look, do what you enjoy. If you're not kind of sure where to go, just do something you enjoy and probably can't go uh, too far wrong and so I had always had an interest in current affairs and, and politics and so I had studied that all throughout school up to sort of higher advanced higher level and I decided that that was probably um the just something that I was passionate about and interested in I thought right that's the that's the track I'm going to go down and I'll sort of see where see where it takes me um I hadn't planned sort of too far ahead I just enjoyed uh, learning about it and thought that this was this was something I wanted to explore a little bit further. 
And when you were studying, did it kind of meet your expectations? Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed uh, studying in Aberdeen. I loved Aberdeen. I made lots of great friends and really thoroughly enjoyed the course. But I will admit, I kind of got to a point where I was quite desperate to kind of get back in, get into the jobs market. And um, and that's when I kind of took my first role down in London and uh, went into the sort of events, events industry at, at that point. But yeah, no, thoroughly enjoyed my years in Aberdeen and um, yeah, wouldn't have done anything differently. So what was it like then being in London? So growing up on the family farm um, and being in a very rural environment and then ending up in the city in events management, completely different environment, completely different way of doing things, the big lights, what was it like? So I really enjoyed it. I think I was ready for something new. I think like, you know, when you get to the end of school, you're probably quite ready to go and do something else. When you get to the end of university, you're probably quite ready to move on to something else. And I wasn't really scared of kind of going and doing something different and doing something new. I just kind of took it in my stride and I, I really enjoyed it. My sister was actually down there at the time. So um, that was probably quite nice to go down and I, and I spent more time with her. And um, yeah, I think your first job is such a steep learning curve and in many ways a bit of a, a baptism of fire. But I think it was in every job you learn something that you can take to the next thing. And it's whether you enjoy jobs or you, you don't, there's always something that you can take from them. Um, and yeah, I think the events industry probably um, well prepared me for things like crisis management and uh, dealing with all sorts of pressures that that probably were were about to follow in in a career in politics. Yeah, and how long were you down there for? So I was probably down there for um, maybe just over a year, and then I came up to to work in Edinburgh um, after that. So that was my kind of stint in London, and then I was obviously back down um, in in Parliament. But yeah, I kind of came back up to Scotland, and um, yeah that's where I stayed for the for the next few years. So talk us through then the next stage which was getting into politics how did all that happen? So it was quite organic I suppose in a sense I wasn't the type of person who was you know at the age of nine saying that I wanted to be prime minister and sit on the green benches and I didn't watch prime minister's questions every week you know and I think it's very important to say that that it's not something that I had my sights on it was something, as I said, kind of touched on earlier, something that I was really interested in. And I just sort of followed that passion and followed that interest. And then whilst I was at university, um, I started to get involved in a sort of voluntary capacity um, behind the scenes. And in Scotland for a period, we had, I think, an election or a campaign every year for about seven or eight years so when you kind of you know get involved I was then sort of involved right through from 2009 um and I've, I've essentially uh right through until 16 17 18 19 um and I think that it's um it's something that I enjoyed because I loved getting out speaking to people and not everybody likes going out in the doors I loved going out in the doors I loved having conversations with people I loved understanding even if they didn't agree I loved understanding why they had come to that that point of view and everybody brings their views and opinions together based on their experiences their beliefs what they've been exposed to their circumstances and I'm just really interested in that and so and it's a lot of fun you know you're going out with big groups of people and you know there there is there is that kind of um there there is that sense of fun which I think is really important when you're you're out especially when you're out in kind of days like today when it's freezing cold and I just always I was always felt like I was 
a foot soldier and I was out there and I was doing the work and I was knocking on doors and I was delivering leaflets. But people would say to me, would you ever do it? Would you ever stand? And I was like, oh, absolutely not. Like, that's not me. And it's interesting because we'll probably come on to touch on this uh, later, but I do wonder if it is something about... Um, I'm not the type of person that would be a politician. You know, that's absolutely not the type of thing I would do, but not questioning why I wasn't that type of person. And so I'd always believed that I was, and I was quite happy doing it. I was happy being the foot soldier that went out and um, and, and and campaigned year in, year out. And that was all kind of behind the scenes. Obviously, I was doing my, my, my day job as well. And then in 20. 16 I was kind of ready to kind of go back out and and, and campaign again and in I think it's like four months before the election the candidate in the um the Angus constituency um that was standing for the Scottish Conservative Party had decided for personal reasons that that they that they wouldn't be able to stand and so they were kind of looking for for a candidate and I remember I vividly remember writing a list of people that I thought could do this of course my name never making it onto that list and then it wasn't until actually other people around me had sort of sat me down and said actually like we almost see in you what you don't see in yourself that you have all the skills to do this and you have, you know, what do you have to lose? We knew we weren't going to win the seat. What do you have to lose? It's three or four months. Go for it. And luckily I had a, 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 I worked for an organisation that that was compatible with because obviously it isn't compatible with every job. Um, and that was when I got the sort of first taste of politics and I didn't win um, and I knew I wouldn't win, but I loved it and I certainly got the bug for it. And I think I just threw everything at it and we, and we had such a great campaign team and I had so much fun. And it was a really positive experience. There's ups and downs, of course there is, and I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on them today. But overall, I felt it was a really positive experience. And I didn't think at that point I needed to think about it again for several years. And then, of course, the snap down election came less than 12 months later. Um, and I had a couple of days to decide whether I was going to stand for that. And, uh, and again, I decided that there's maybe not much chance I'm going to win here, but I've done a lot of the groundwork and I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a shot. Um, and then obviously everything turned around uh, six weeks later. And how did that feel to win? So it's, um, it was a complete shock. And just to kind of give a bit of context, I think that's um, quite interesting is that I remember the sort of, election you're it's a grueling process a campaign it is non-stop it's seven days a week it's it just there's just so much to do and you want to get around as many houses as you can and there's just there's never a spare moment and you then sort of on election day itself all you can you, you obviously you're not kind of knocking doors you're sort of getting out the vote which is phoning people and 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 ensuring that you know they're 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 heading out and i would be on the phones as well i never asked anyone to do anything that, that i would have done myself and so you're just kind of full day on the phones and then you run home you get changed and then you go to the count at 10 o'clock at night then you start counting the papers which is very interesting to somebody like a political anorak like me and um you and I remember thinking, oh, it's looking a bit closer. It's looking, it's looking all right. Um, but genuinely hadn't sort of crossed my mind that I could win the seat. And I've been really open that this was not something that I thought was going to happen. And then I remember going to the bathroom to touch up my makeup because I'd not 
um, I'd been out up since five o'clock or something in the morning and I thought I'll touch up with makeup and then I'll go and write a quick speech and then that'll be me and I remember I think it was my sister came to the bathroom and she said um she said uh, oh they want to see you and I was like oh must be quite close it must be a recount and actually um it wasn't a recount they were kind of taking us to the a huddle in this kind of um big sports hall in in uh, in our growth and that was the point that they said that I had I had won and you get about you kind of told off stage and then you get brought up on stage you got about 30 seconds to get your head around it which obviously isn't enough time and uh and I didn't have the speech written and I had to kind of get up and uh yeah you're still you're still in a state of shock I think I was probably in a state of shock for quite a bit of time uh, after it but um it was uh yeah it then became this kind of fascinating journey um and one that yeah I have very fond memories of I think one of the things that really stands out there for me is you start off by saying you never even thought of putting yourself forward as a candidate and yet you go and win the seat and how did that because now you know you're a leadership coach for women you are a shining example of what women can achieve how did that feel in terms of your confidence and your faith in your own abilities going from not really thinking of putting yourself forward to actually winning the seat? So I think that in kind of thinking back about this retrospectively, um, I and, and working with women now, I can see this really clearly, is that people will come to me in my capacity now as a coach and say, you know, how do I build confidence? How do I build self-confidence? Because I think a lot of what we're talking about here, that's what it boils down to. And I'll say, well, there's no silver bullet. You know, what building confidence is about doing things that feel a bit risky, but doing them and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And as you do that, your comfort zone becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So, for example, if somebody said to me in... Um, 2017 when I had just become a newly elected MP will you go and um, sit on the question time panel I would have probably said no but by 2019 I felt ready to do that and it was just because over that time I had done lots of media about point you delivered lots of speeches you had consistently kept pushing yourself out your comfort zone and I think it's a really important point to make because people could look in and think oh I was 27 I was an MP she's super successful and um she you know I could never do that I heard that so many times from other women saying I could never do what you did and actually I had all the fears and the lack of confidence and things that lots of other people had but I was each week in that job having to push through that because you know you were speaking in the chamber every week you were doing media every week you were speaking at conferences panel events whatever it might be and it was just that ability to keep pushing and making that comfort zone bigger and bigger and bigger and then I think that's probably what I was doing over that time so from what you, you were touching on there about thinking oh it's absolutely not for me to then standing and winning a seat I think that was just about that consistently doing things that felt a bit scary but I think they were interesting a bit challenging something I'm passionate about and just going for it and I think that that's probably like the most important sort of takeaway that I can, um, that I, I probably have looking back retrospectively is about just keep pushing yourself. Nobody builds confidence overnight. It's, it's just about keeping pushing yourself to do things and 
you will become better and you will become more confident. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast so far is failure. And um, my view is that the fear of failure will kill far more dreams than failure itself. And it's something I certainly aspire to. And it sounds like with your approach, it's it's not trying to get over that fear of failure, but it's being being afraid and doing it anyway. Yeah, definitely. It's yeah, it's feeling the fear and doing it anyway because actually, everything that's going to build your confidence is probably going to be a bit scary, and it's about pushing through and doing it anyway. And I think that even people might think, you know. Um, I remember reading, for example, in his David Cameron's autobiography, and he said like the worst half hour of his week was the half hour before Prime Minister's questions. You know, we've heard like Michelle Obama talk about feeling like an imposter. You know, there's no matter kind of how successful you become or the kind of role that you take on, everybody has these internal fears because you wouldn't, I don't think you'd be normal if you didn't have these things. But it is, it's about, it's about pushing through them and and doing it anyway and that's and then these things so getting up and delivering a speech won't be such a big thing to you once you've done a few doing a media piece won't be such a big thing once you've done it multiple times um but sometimes i think we can compare ourselves today to somebody else who's been doing something for five or ten years and sometimes maybe social media kind of helps do that, that sort of direct comparison. And actually, everybody's running their own race and everybody's doing it at their own pace. And I think if you're just constantly pushing yourself, you will get there. Um, and I think that that's probably the, the sort of biggest takeaway that I, that I have is to just kind of keep pushing out of the comfort zone. Because I think if you don't, it just then it contracts. I think it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and, and that can probably happen quite quickly as well. So, yeah, keep pushing through. I mean, comparison is the thief of joy. It really is, especially especially on social media. Absolutely. I'm sat here just like nodding, like, yeah, you're saying all the things that I say to people all the time, like talking about marketing and people say like, oh, they look at like my social media, my presence online and they like compare it to theirs. And I'm like, yeah, but this is seven, eight years of work. You're on day one. Like it's not, it's not comparable. And I think feeling the fear of doing it anyway. And I think also I was just, thinking back Charlotte when we recorded episode one and we're like both of us like can't get any words out like retook the same bits like about 25 times and like you know and we're like I think we probably both came off that first recording like why are we doing a podcast like we have no ability to do this but actually you know 22 episodes in uh you know we're we're facing down our our anniversary in in the new year and we are much more confident about having these conversations. We're going to do an anniversary episode that's just us. And I think we're both feeling a little bit apprehensive about it. But we know we can podcast because we've done 22 episodes and we've really built an audience. And, you know, that's just one example. And I am sure that all our listeners will have examples exactly like you've given of just doing it anyway and kind of growing from their comfort zone and, and pushing themselves beyond, which is just just fantastic. Yeah, it's about building the evidence because I think until you've got evidence that you can do a podcast, then all our brains try to keep us safe so that, you know, that's saying, you know, don't go near that, don't take that risk, don't do that. And and actually it's just about building the evidence that you can do something, whether it is 
delivering a podcast episode, whether it is building up your social media, whether it is delivering speech, once you've got evidence or your brain has evidence that you can do it, those fears will just dial down and it will become a lot easier to do. It doesn't mean you don't have the anxiety, but it, it will it will be less, I think, over time. So kind of moving on from politics, which I'm sure we'll um, come back to, you now run a, run a business in power supporting women I guess can you tell us a bit about kind of where that came from what inspires you to do that and kind of yeah what you do with it so I think starting with kind of why I do it is probably twofold so one piece of that is around I'm just hugely passionate about supporting women to who have all the skills and talents to do what they want to do and that might be starting a business it might be scaling a business it might be you know um stepping up in in their organization it might be standing for parliament it might be leading an organization whatever it is and ensuring that just what we've been talking about that a lack of confidence doesn't hold them back that fears don't hold them back that a lack of support doesn't hold them back because I do have this kind of sense of um I suppose it's, there still feels like a sense of injustice that there's so many women who have all the skills and talents to do whatever they want to do, but they're still maybe not in positions that are completely fulfilling what they have to give. And it still frustrates me because it feels like we should be so much further forward with this. And we know that like in Scotland, and I think across the UK as well, it's, it's the same where only 20% of businesses are run by women. We know that there's just so few women running organisations. We know that, well, Parliament's a bit better. We're still not quite at 50-50 with Parliament. And there's lots of reasons for that. I think there's more that everybody can do because it isn't women that are the issue here. This is systems and processes that have been built up over time that haven't provided equal opportunities. And so I think there's that kind of sense of wanting to kind of drive and help I suppose drive some of that change and then there's the piece around the sort of personal um, experiences that I've had and that sort of in that very public role as an MP where it was a very heated and toxic period of British politics and there was lots of abuse hurled at me and there was lots of challenges and it was a massive uh, steep learning curve um, that I sort of felt that there were lots of traits that perhaps held me back that I didn't really realise were traits at the time and I didn't really realise it was something that's maybe more prevalent in women. But also being quite a male-dominated environment, being um, firstly in Parliament is still quite a male-dominated environment, but also in, um, I was one of 13 Scottish Conservative MPs, I was the only female in the group. So when we would go for meetings, I'd be the only, off very regularly, the only female in the room. And just kind of observing how differently that men and women can act and sometimes how we're held to different standards in some ways and just kind of seeing that there is there is still differences there and sometimes they're really subtle, but there is still differences there. And I really feel a lot of satisfaction in supporting women to do whatever they want to do, break down barriers to, I suppose when they come for support and then working with them and them doing things that they never thought they were capable of doing it just feels like there's nothing more satisfying than that and having been through it and lots of the things and obviously everyone's experiences are very individual but having been through a lot of it I feel like I can resonate a lot with what people are thinking and what they're going through and sometimes it's just 
half of the battle sometimes is to say, do you know I felt that? Or that's that, you know, and just just kind of feeling like it's normal that people do think like this. And the reason that you do this is because of this. And just having that awareness, there's such strength in that. And things like this podcast, you know, just people speaking about their experiences and and normalizing things because I think we can, you know, we touched on it earlier, we can compare. And it's just so unhelpful because we're comparing often on social media, like somebody else is outside to what we're thinking inside. And that isn't, a, that isn't a kind of, we're comparing apples and pears. And so I do feel that any, whether it's coaching, whether it's um, women's organizations, whether it's podcasts that support women and we can hear from women's experiences, I think they are so, so important to accelerating this change so that in our lifetime that we do see uh, gender equality in, in the workplace, which we still, still feels like we're quite a long way off at the moment. Um, never mind what about what inspires you, but I feel inspired just listening to that, so that's fine. <laughs> I think it's um I think it's it's really interesting though what you're saying about you know you do look at politics and you see that it's it's much more kind of male over male over female and um and that there is there is there is an equality, but being in a room, being the only female in a room, and as we've as we've already said, you know, from the outside looking super successful, really confident. Um, but did you feel that there was like a need to to prove yourself or to kind of um, demonstrate kind of um, the way people should see you rather than maybe how you actually felt rather than like and kind of almost uh, fake it till you fake it till you make it and prove prove your prove your place. Yeah, this is a really interesting point because I've discussed this with quite a lot of people subsequently around that sense of being 27 and being a woman. And I was elected to a constituency that geographically is quite big, but it's a small community. And I was hearing murmurings of, um, mm, what does she really have to bring? You know, is she really up to this? And... I did feel that I had to prove myself and I was up for it. I was going to do it, but I did feel the sense of having to prove myself that if I was a middle-aged man, would I have had to do that? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I certainly felt it. And I'd had conversations with friends and in senior roles who often, I suppose some people have the view that age can sometimes be a bigger challenge um, than the, the, the sort of gender issue but for me it definitely was something that I think I, I was 27 I probably looked younger um it's probably caught up on me now but I think I looked younger and uh, and so people did have I think probably just a bit of skepticism and so I did feel like I probably had to prove myself I knew when I went into it there was two things that I wanted to do and one was that I wanted to improve the kind of connection between somebody um, that was represented to, to, to look after um, a constituency and to ensure that there wasn't this case of you've had an MP for 10 years but you walk, you walk down the street and nobody knows the name or whatever it is. Like I, I felt that there was something going wrong there if that was happening. So I wanted to really ensure that I was accessible and that I was out there and I was getting into community, every single community across the area. So that was one thing that I really wanted to do. And the second thing that I wanted to do was I didn't just want to represent, I wanted to make change, I wanted to do things. 
And so that's where things like my campaign for um, reintroducing the seasonal agricultural worker scheme, which was to bring in seasonal workers, predominantly from Eastern Europe, to support the soft fruit farms in my constituency, but also uh, veg growers and bulb growers. Um, and it wasn't just in Scotland, it was obviously quite more widely across the UK. And, and that was a campaign that I um, that I led and that we did get a successful outcome from. We did uh, reintroduce the scheme and, and the scheme over successive years has, has, um, has increased. But I suppose there was definitely, there was, there's lots of ups in the jobs and there's so many positives helping people and feeling like you are making change, whether it is around the seasonal agricultural workers scheme, whether it was around ensuring the long-term future of the Royal Marines base, my constituency. I did quite a lot of work around eating disorders and setting up the first cross-party group on on that. And so I did really feel like I went in there to deliver and that was that was what I wanted to do. And that was kind of what drove me and got me up in, in the morning and got me. But I think there was also challenges, like no doubt about it. And um, one of those challenges would have been the abuse that, that I had um during that time. Um there was a bit of research done that I was the most one of the most abused um female politicians in Scotland outside party leaders. There was a sense of I um have done a lot of work around this, but I did have challenges around some of the traits that I now work with women around being a bit of a perfectionist, being a bit people pleaser trying to do everything myself um and definitely when I when I entered the green benches feeling like a bit of an imposter and so I did have lots of these challenges that I had to probably dial down a bit because actually and I find this now with clients as well is that when you get there's lots of traits that we build up and we do them for very legitimate reasons and they get us to a certain point and then when we get into a role um, it, it might just be a role that's just more senior, that actually they start to hinder us. So for, for me, for example, perfectionism has its positives because it meant I was really conscientious and I think we shouldn't just kind of label these as bad things because I think there's kind of good in them. But actually I couldn't dot every I and cross every T because I was getting thousands of emails in a week and you were your days were for so long as it was, you just didn't have the capacity to do it. You know, when you represent seventy thousand people, you can't be you can't be a people pleaser because you're not going to please them all. And that was really really evident. Um, you can't do everything yourself. You know, you have to relinquish responsibility for other people to take on these roles. And so, I suppose over time, I did dial these down a little bit, even subconsciously, because it was just I just couldn't do it. But now I feel that on the work that I've done and and the coaching work that I've done that that is something that I definitely focus a lot on with other women and it is something that I consistently still try to reduce myself because sometimes they will still dial dial up and they will still flare up and it's about just kind of being aware of it and being aware of the situations in which they do and I think awareness is is probably is probably half the half of the battle but as I touched on just a moment ago I think it's important also to say that that I was reading a piece this morning actually and it was somebody had sort of said somebody had briefed to the to the press something about the prime minister and him being sort of thin-skinned or something and I just kind of think sometimes we can get caught up in these labels of being a perfectionist being thin-skinned being a people pleaser being an imposter and actually well don't we need people in politics that are perfectionists but 
but quite hard but means they're quite hard working if you're a people pleaser you've probably quite quite a lot of empathy and we need that in politics if you feel like an imposter well you know you've probably got quite a lot of self-awareness if you're thin-skinned maybe you listen to other people and that's no bad thing either and I think it's about not having them to the extremes because I think that probably holds you back but these are not things that are bad these are there's lots of good in them and it's about dialing it up and down to get it to the level that you can function at and that you can um you can do your role um, to your best of your ability at but not cancelling them out completely and I think sometimes when there's labels we can think that we want to cancel that label out and actually there's lots of good in that and that's part of you and that's part of your personality and if we want to be authentic leaders and we want to connect with people and all these kind of things then actually you know we want to bring ourselves to work and and I think that's really important. I think that's really interesting what you're saying because although a lot of what you've just said relates to politics it's all true of senior leaders in you know you want them to have these characteristics you want them to be hardworking, you want them to be empathetic and and some of that does come from these traits that can be seen as more of a challenge and more more negative as you particularly as you come up I think through your career to kind of say like this is you know maybe you want to be a senior leader but and people look at you and think oh she's too much of a people pleaser or she's too much of this or she's too much of that but actually like you say learning to dial them up and down but still having them underlying so that you show up in the best possible way as a leader is is, is really valuable um Kirsten, I just want to touch on the on the dark side of politics because you have briefly mentioned about the abuse that you faced but I think I'd like to understand how you dealt with that yeah so I think that there's two kind of pieces to this one is why deal i'm going to come back to that in a moment and i think the other bit is the impact that abuse in public life because it's it's wider than politics it's it's those that lead our police service it's those that lead our nhs anyone in a public role um will see just a higher level of abuse than they previously did i remember speaking to um a former uh, politician who said that you know the worst day was the the day the weekly paper came out because that was when the letters page came and that was when you would get told what you were doing right and wrong but there is a little bit of kind of censorship in that in the sense that you know you're putting it in a publication whereas when you're online there is there's none of that people can essentially write whatever they want and i think that the problem, the big problem that I have with it is that it, I suppose that there's two things. One is that it, it 100% deters women from standing in Parliament. I firsthand have experienced that where I've asked people to stand, people who would be absolutely brilliant at any, leg, at any level of government. And yet they continue to point to social media as a reason why they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't put themselves through it. They wouldn't put their families through it. They wouldn't put their children through it. And I suppose when you're in a role like an MP, for example, where your social media is a very visible part of your role, it's where you document what you're doing. There's lots of really positive parts of this role. There's really lots of constructive meeting behind the scenes. There's great cross-party work. There's so much positivity that often people don't see, but the social media pages are so visible and it can sometimes be people's only touch point with what you're doing, that that's what they see and that's what they think it's all about. And so I think the biggest challenge is that it is a, is a significant deterrent to women um, getting involved in politics. And I think that's bad for 
policy making, I think that is ad for representation overall, ad for, for democracy. But I think that the second point is the kind of individual impact it has on people. And I remember at the time people would ask me, um, you know, does this, does it bother you? No, no, it doesn't bother me. And I suppose part of me didn't want to be defined by it. Part of me wanted to just always be talking about abuse because actually I wanted to be talking about the good things I was doing, the positive elements of the job, because that's, you know, that's what I wanted to give airtime to, not to a small minority of people. And, but actually you can't ignore it. And because if you're ignoring it, you wouldn't look at your social media channels, you wouldn't look at your email inbox, so you'd be completely disconnected from your constituents. You wouldn't do surgeries. You know, you um, you wouldn't walk down the street because people could say things to you. I mean, you, you can't ignore it. It is there, it's part of the job. And I suppose in looking back now, I think it's easier for me to, I, I probably would have dealt with it differently, but I think now it's probably easier for me to compartmentalise it into kind of two groups. So one kind of people is people who, use social media as a way to express their normally discontent, but sometimes um, content with the way that things were going. At that time that I was in politics, it was generally discontent. And it was there, they didn't want to email you, they didn't want to come to your surgery, but they put across their view and they were absolutely entitled to do so. And I welcomed everybody's views, irrespective of whether I agreed with them and I wanted to hear them. And then there's like a group of people who, I mean, you could literally do nothing to get positivity from them. You would throw, you, you would sort of give money to charity and, and that would also be a problem. And there was nothing that you could do. And in that group of people, it's a very small group of people, but a very loud group of people. And that's where the kind of sexism and the misogyny and the envy and the all these kind of things, I think, are are sort of really prevalent in that group. And I always had the view, and I became a bit more assertive about this over time, that unless people spoke respectfully to me, then I, you know, I didn't, I don't, you know, you come back to, if you're, if people were angry at me, as like, you come back and book another appointment, but I wasn't being shouted at. And I think that over time I became better at, at that because you're in a public role, but you're, you're not a punch bag. And I think that over time you can sort of, compartmentalize it a little bit and say well these are people's views that they would never be happy they didn't even know me and they weren't happy but I think what's important in all of this because I think the question is around how do we change it and I think there's two bits so one is that leaders whether you're an MP a councillor or a leader in any organization there is you are a leader in your organization or in your community and there's a responsibility attached to that and there's a responsibility to act in a way that you would kind of expect others to act. And I don't think all our leaders do that, um, if I'm honest. And I think that that does incite some of the vitriol that we do see online. But I think also, and just as I touched on there, the second point is around kind of when people put their head above the parapet, when people go and stand in these positions and lead organisations or or um, stand for parliament, whatever it might be, you know, they put their head above the parapet to stand up for something and you might not agree with them, but we can have more tolerance for two different views to coexist in the same space. It doesn't mean that because you're right, I'm wrong, or or you should be cancelled, or you should be um, kind of pushed out because your view doesn't align with mine. And I think we've gone kind of too far down that track. And I think that's really worrying. And it's worrying not only because of the impact that we've seen in kind of social media and the tragic deaths of two MPs, um, but it also, it also, I suppose, makes 
people who are hugely talented and who have so much to give in parliament or, or wherever it might be say, do you know what? I'm not going to do it. And I think that that is, it, it acts as such a huge deterrent, not just to get in your representative part, but to be getting a parliament that is full of all the skills and talents and experiences that we need. So I think we've got a long to go, but tolerance feels feels key in all of it. So given your experience with this, and given that I think you said you were the most abused female MP at the time, is that right? Outside the party leaders in Scotland, yeah. Yeah. So given your experience with that, would you do it again? This is a question I've been asked um, uh, since I lost my seat. And I've never ruled it out. I'm very happy doing what I'm doing just now. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. And I'm enjoying it. And I'm quite happy. Um, I wouldn't rule out doing it again. But for the moment, I'm quite happy to be kind of using the experiences and the skills that I built up to support other women um, and that might need to support other women to go into parliament because I do, I do desperately want to see us reach that 50, 50, um, in all parliaments across the UK and more widely. I think it's really, really important. You'd obviously done a huge amount of work, had some great, you know, brilliant, successful campaigns, had really made a difference within your constituency, had taken a lot of abuse in the process. How did it then feel to lose your seat? It's a very difficult process to go through um, because I think you're so full on um, in the role and then you're so full on during a campaign that all you are focused on is doing the very best you can in the short time that you have. And so I suppose I'm so focused on that that um, when the result came, it wasn't that I hadn't thought I had thought there was no chance I would lose. Of course I thought in politics there's always a chance and you take that risk and and you know that when you go into it. Um, but it's um, it's a very kind of steep learning curve as you go in. It's a big shock as you go in and it's probably a big shock for everybody as they come out. And I think everybody would accept that irrespective of the time that you've been in because it's more than a job in many ways. It's a lifestyle choice. You know, you you live down in London most of the week. You are, your goal is is very kind of, it's very busy, it's very pressurised, it's very full on, your phone doesn't stop, your emails don't stop. And then obviously when you lose your seats, it all comes to kind of quite a quite abrupt end and that's it. And you've got the kind of few months to sort of wind up your office and then it's time to kind of look to the next thing. And combined with that, it was it was sort of December time, 2019. So combined with that, we were, by the time I sort of worked out my office and ensured that I supported my, my team into to new jobs, because obviously there's, there's job losses as part of, of, of you losing your job. Um, then I kind of, then the pandemic started to sort of, um, uh, sort of creep in and that was becoming a bigger issue and Quite quickly, actually, we obviously went into to lockdown. So I went from this kind of very busy, very full-on role to this complete opposite of nobody being able to do anything, essentially, um, outside their house. And it it was quite a stark um, 
shift. But what it did allow me to do was say, actually, what do I want to do next? And where do I want to go? And I think that there's lots of people that I talk to about this. And there's so many people that are probably not very happy in their work and want to change, but you know, don't know what to do and can probably get a bit stuck. And I think it's so important that choosing what you do, taking the time to choose what you do, is something that you do spend time and energy on if you're not happy because it takes up so much of your life and if you're not happy it will affect your relationships and it will affect your mood and it will affect your mental health and so I and I think we're also in an age where we don't stay in the same sector necessarily for the whole uh of our of our kind of working life we are it is much more flexible and people do move about and that's the exciting thing is that you, you can almost not know where you're going next and so I did quite a lot of work around, and this is the same sort of work I now do with, with other women, is around sort of that sort of self-assessment, saying actually, well, what bits of that, luckily I'd come out of a hugely varied job, what bits of that job did I really enjoy? Not only what bits did I enjoy, what bits was I good at? Um, you know, really kind of drilling down on your achievements, your strengths, um, your interests, your hobbies, all these kind of things and sort of bringing that together and kind of piecing it together. And it takes time and it doesn't happen overnight, but really trying to piece that together. So for me, it was about, I knew that I was passionate about supporting women. I'd always supported women um, and into politics, for example. I knew that I loved surgeries and knocking on doors and speaking to people. I knew that I wanted to take a change and that was kind of reflected in my campaigns. I knew that I um, liked helping people and I got a lot of satisfaction out of of that. And so I kind of pieced all this together, but I didn't do it alone. And I think this is really important is that I reached out to lots and lots of different people and got lots of advice. And sometimes when we're not sure what to do, you can be a bit afraid of doing that. But actually, I found that the vast majority of people are very willing to give you their time, whether it's half an hour or an hour to sit down for a coffee and to have a chat and to just maybe find out a bit more about what they're doing or to bounce your ideas off of. And I think it's a job search and finding the right job and moving job. It it's you shouldn't do it alone. And I think you should all I think what's also important is about kind of setting a goal and saying, right, in six months' time I want to be you know, at this point, I want to be a bit further on because I think sometimes when we don't know what to do, it can be really, really easy to get stuck and to do nothing and then to get more and more frustrated. And then you might get offered another job and it might not be right, but you jump to it because you just need out of so desperately out of this situation. So for me, it's about small steps, piecing the jigsaw together and really, I think, focusing on your strengths. And that, for me, is things that you're good at and that you get satisfaction and energy out of. Because you can be good at things, but actually you don't get a lot of energy out of them or, or they might drain you a little bit. So it's really about focusing on that. And the other thing that I would say, which maybe sounds a bit odd, but it's something that I think is really important, is that this um, emotion around envy is really fascinating because... If you're envious, you see somebody else doing something, it might be on social media, it might be whatever. It might be somebody else is going to set up a business and you're envious of it. The, there was a piece of advice that I got, which was around envy being, envy sort of showing you something that you see in other people that you're capable of doing yourself. And so as you're kind of starting to piece that jigsaw together around what you want to do, it might sound a bit odd, but actually when that sort of bubbles up for you, 
what what is that what's that about you know why do you think that you're maybe feeling that when you see somebody's post or you see somebody starting a podcast or you see somebody kind of starting a new role or a business and that can often tell you a lot about what's maybe missing yourself and I think that's also quite important um to consider in all of it that is absolutely fascinating. And just going back to what we said earlier about comparison as the thief of joy and you know the fact that people are envious. And social media is a nightmare because it's only ever the good stuff that happens in people's lives and it's the showreel of what happens. And it's very, very hard not to, not to do that comparison, no matter how secure you are in yourself and your own decisions. And I think particularly when you are at a pivotal moment in your life for whatever reason, it's very easy to look to others and think, oh, well, you know, they've got this brilliant job or this great relationship or whatever it may be um oh I'm really envious of that and and Kirstie you hit the nail on the head it's something that you are capable of doing yourself yeah absolutely and sometimes it's just like it's just these little snippets of information and nuggets that you can pick up from you know podcast episodes or from books or from advice that you get from people that have have been through things and there's some things that'll stick with you and some things that won't but that was certainly one that really stuck with me and it made made an awful an awful lot of sense um as as you're trying to work out what your your next steps are yeah absolutely and I think as well just touching on your point about being able to go to people and have these conversations and get advice from others um so one of the, again one of the things we talk about a lot is about allies and we talked about it in Emma McAllister Hall's episode um and it's something I mean Hannah's talked about so much on this about having your allies around you and having your people around you and um being able to lean on each other and be able to get advice and things from each other as well so a huge huge part of women supporting women as well you know which is a a really key thing for this podcast and what we're all about is women supporting women um I was just gonna say I think what you said about meeting people for a coffee for half an hour giving up your time I've always found when so this week I met someone for for a coffee she'd asked to pick my brain about some marketing stuff and I came away feeling like I'd given it, we'd talked about all sorts of marketing strategy, how she might do something, all of this. But I came away feeling energized, encouraged, you know, reinvigorated from that meeting. So actually every time you meet someone and or if somebody asks you to meet and you think, oh, they're just take is a take meeting, you feel it's a take meeting that you're asking for. Usually the other person also comes away revived. The same as like mentoring through, like I'm involved with women in property, they have a mentoring scheme. And I know that everybody says as the mentor, they get as much from it as the mentee gets from it and it's that all of those things about supporting other people and I think there's lots of opportunities to do that but I I know I'm one who'll never say no to meeting somebody for a coffee when it's that kind of context because I know that I'm going to come away feeling inspired and uplifted on the back of it as well yeah definitely and I think the point they make around women supporting women is so so important and I also think that there's a great importance of the men supporting this kind of whole challenge that we have around, you know, ensuring that women do set, do kind of push themselves to achieve all that they can. And, you know, given you know what we talked about earlier around men still run the vast majority of organisations across the country, they still have, you know, the power to change policies and practices and they have lots of fantastic advice and some of the the best advice as well that I've received is is not just from women. I've received fantastic advice from from men as well as men that encourage me to stand for politics for the first time. It's all men, and so I think that you know it's important that 
we don't kind of push them out of this debate as well. I think it's really important that it is, it's not just a female problem, this challenge. This is everybody's challenge and, and everybody does their own little bit. And, and that's what will help us achieve what, what we all want to see. Great point, Kirstine. And I think leads us very nicely to how we end every episode with a question that we ask all our guests, which is what is the one piece of advice that you would give to the next generation of rural women in Scotland and potentially rural men as well? So I think this is quite difficult because there's so many um, great bits of advice. I think the one thing that I would say is to go with your gut instinct and I think sometimes we can deliberate over things and we can um, try and kind of wait and find all the information we need to make the best decision. And actually, somebody once said to me that if you go with your gut, you're 95% of the time you'll be right. And just as we're talking about social media and comparison and things, sometimes we can be compelled to do what we think other people think we should do or what that external judgment might be from this decision um, and actually what we often don't listen to is what we think about a certain decision and I think given that not just in the rural industry but all industries are moving at such a pace that we need to make decisions more quickly and we need to be able to I, I suppose one thing that I remember hearing was Barack Obama, a piece of advice he'd given was that every time that he got a decision on his desk, essentially it was a difficult one because nobody else had been able to make it and that's why it was on his desk. And he said that, you know, I essentially used to get to 51%. So as soon as I got to 51% either way, I would go with that decision because I couldn't wait to get to 60 or 70% because that would mean time and I didn't have time. And I think sometimes we can be really focused on getting on, and I could be guilty of this too, like getting to 60 or 70% or 80% and making sure that the decision is absolutely right. And we're, I suppose we're scared of it being wrong, but actually there's something about making quick decisions based on that gut instinct, not on fear, but on your gut instinct. And even if it's wrong, you can fix it. But the energy that we expend on spending lots and lots of time on a decision means that we're delaying that decision and we're probably not dedicating enough time to all the other decisions that we need to make. And so I think it's about trusting what you think is right and trying, and I know it's really hard, but trying to sort of ignore the fears that are maybe surfacing or the external judgment of what other people might think. Because at the end of the day, if that's the track we take, we probably end up in a space that we don't want to end up in. Um, and so listening to ourselves, something that I certainly have tried to do a lot more of is something that I would definitely pass on to the next generation. What a great way to end the episode. Kirsten, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a great chat. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kirstine, and sharing your stories, experiences and lessons. If you want to connect with Kirstine on social media, you will find all her details in the show notes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Instagram at Women and Wellies Podcast to stay up to date with all the latest news. And you can email us with any questions on womeninwelliespodcast at gmail.com and we'd love it if you leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time.